There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. From the Intercontinental Hotel in Dubai Festival City. This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 special. Live at the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. Hear from the world's greatest writers. Welcome along to a very special broadcast here at the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. I am Sonal Rupani. I've got Noni Edwards alongside me this morning. Good morning, everybody. With no further ado, we do have so much to get through. I want to welcome our very first guest into the conversation. We have Roma Agrawal beside us. She's a London-based, award-winning structural engineer. In fact, she was involved in building the iconic Shard in London. And she's here in town to discuss her book called Built. Roma, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me, absolutely thrilled. Now we just learned um, a moment ago that this isn't your first time to Dubai. No, I actually used to live here um, a decade ago and a decade is a really, really long time here, it would seem. <laughs> yeah, the city has completely changed. So I, I wonder for someone like you who's involved in, you kind of fly the flag for educating people on structural engineers about what goes behind a building, how mm. much it takes, how buildings stay standing, which I'm really interested to talk to you in just a bit about <laughs> what some of those things are that, that keep the roofs over our heads. Um, but when you're traveling, you must be constantly distracted. So when you come to Dubai 10 years later after living here, mm. tell me wh- how you react to the <laughs> skyline. Are you analyzing every sing- single building that you see? Yeah, I mean, it's almost unrecognizable to me because I used to live near the Burj Khalifa and the Dubai Mall. And there's so much um, development that's happened there since I left. There's the Opera House, which I found completely fascinating. I had a little quick walk through there. Um, of course, the Burj Khalifa is there in all its glory. Um, and I'm just completely fascinated by the sheer number of cranes that you can see everywhere. But I mean, in some ways, Dubai does its job for me because people are fascinated by construction here because it's such an integral part of the fabric of this city, which it isn't in that same way in lots of other places in the world. Um, So people just seem to be generally fascinated by structural engineering here. So yeah, half my work is done. (laughs) You do see a lot of ingenuity in the buildings here. It seems like almost the opportunity to create with carte blanche, I feel like, Mm. for a lot of the buildings. Is there a certain building that speaks to you here that you (laughs) maybe wish that you could have been involved in or that you find fascinating? So I think if you asked me that question 10 years ago, then I would have said the Burj Khalifa, Mm -hmm. um, because obviously it's the tallest building in the world. And then people like me who design tall structures are really fascinated by, well, how high can you go? How can you get taller and taller? What are the different structural systems, materials that you can use? Um, And what's particularly interesting about the Middle East is um, because of earthquakes, you have this whole new dimension to the way you have to design things. So I have a huge fascination for that. Um, Recently, so I don't actually know the name of the building, but you might recognize it from my description. It's like a ring and it has this beautiful Arabic calligraphy that kind of envelops it. So is it a museum that's coming up? The Museum of the Future. Museum of the Future, yeah, exactly. So I found that that shape is really innovative, really interesting. um, And I was really lucky that I could see the structure, the the kind of the steel trusses, the triangles that form its skeleton um, as the facade is going up. So, you know, kind of I got to see the bones before all the, you know, the skin has, has gone into the building. So I was excited to see that. When you go on holiday, which city strikes you I suppose the most or has really impacted you the most in terms of you just not being able to get enough of the skyscape <laughs> or the cityscape? Um, so my namesake, uh, Rome in Italy. Yeah. So 
I every time I go there, I nearly get run over by the Vespers, kind of flitting around because I'm just looking everywhere and I can't, I, ca I still can't compute the amount of historical engineering that that city has. Um, and I think, like in Dubai, it's very visible. You can see it everywhere. So Rome is like that, but it's 2,000 years old. And what I find fascinating about there is um, you dig down and you find old structure. And so actually building new stuff is a real challenge because you keep finding amazing Roman ruins every time you dig down. So that's not a problem yet for Dubai, but maybe in 2,000 years time, we'll be having yeah. a different conversation. That's so, so something you never think about, is it, in terms of the fact that when a city is that old, that there's so much that exists already that you can't really build too much new on top of it. Um, I want to go back, now you do a lot to educate people on something I think a lot of people don't really think about, I mean, about how buildings stand. There's a lot of credit that's given to architects, to designers. There's a, yeah. you know, a lot of frenzy around that. But in terms of the actual mechanics of it, of the physicality of it, it's not really that widely understood. So I want to talk, you have a pretty creative way in how you educate people. Hi, it's Roma, and I'm going to talk now about beams. So beams are the horizontal bits of structure that you stand on when you're in the building. And they're quite clever pieces of structure, really. So you stand on them, and if you can imagine, I'm going to use this carrot as a demonstration, that you know, this is a beam being held up by two columns, and then you've got a person standing on it. And what happens is they start to flex and bend. So you use food. So we just heard there an example of you describing carrots as metal beams. But I've also seen you use Maltesers, for example, to describe different properties of the, the materials that you're using. Tell me a little bit about this approach that you take to educating people and why you decided people needed to know about structural engineering. So, I mean, I think structural engineering is has been such an amazing profession for me. I found it kind of technically, intellectually very fulfilling. I've been able to travel around the world, I've been able to work on projects in different places, um, I've been able to meet amazing people, and you get paid well. And you know, you think that, oh, that sounds like a great job to have, but unfortunately, I know. <laughs> unfortunately, a lot of young people are not really aware of it, and I think part of it comes down to this lack of awareness. Like you said, we talk about architects and designers, we don't necessarily talk about the engineering that holds it up. So I just really wanted to share my enthusiasm for this profession. Um, of course, there's a gender gap um, in the, you know, the women going into the industry are few and far between. So I wanted to go out and say, well, you know, you can have a great career in engineering. So I tried to find a way to break down what we do, to make it non-technical, to make it non-scary, um, and maybe a bit less nerdy. I'm still a complete nerd, but a little bit less nerdy than you might expect. And I just, like, people love food, don't they? So when you talk about rolling around bits of chocolate, it's very memorable to them. So they'll say, oh, yeah, didn't she use chocolate to compare them to the atoms in an iron matrix? So it's just about how to communicate things in a fun way to people. How did you go from uh, wanting to share the passion of your industry to really what's become a public advocacy role? <laughs> uh, it wasn't planned. So, you know, I was an engineer, head down, doing my work, um, building stuff. And I think I was just really, really lucky to work on the Shard so early on in my career. And the Shard um, is the tallest building in Western Europe. It's about 310 meters tall. And that's about a third of the height of, you know, less than a third of the height of, sorry, more than a third of the height of the Burj Khalifa. 
but for the UK, that's a really, really tall building. So it really captured the imagination of young people in particular. And so people started to invite me and say, can you come and just tell our kids, tell, tell our students about what you did on the project? And I think being um, a young woman, but, you know, I'm from an ethnic minority, um, just drew people to wanting to know more about me and my background. So that's where it all started. I really want to know more about working on the shard, but before we get to that, I want to touch on something that you said about the gender imbalance in a profession like engineering. Now, when you go and you speak to people who are much younger and you reach out to them at a younger age, are you still seeing that, I guess, what we would consider almost a traditional sense of, in the past, so often there's a sense that men will gravitate or males will gravitate towards more technical subjects. Mm. When you go speak to a, you know, a bunch of younger kids, do you see that early on, or does it feel pretty equal to you now in this, at this point? I do get young people asking, young women asking me, do I face discrimination? What is it like to be a woman? So they're aware that there is an imbalance, and that makes me sad in some ways. Mm. Um, so even uh, two days ago when I was in a school in Dubai, I, I got asked that question. So there is a sense of that, but what, what I'm really positive about is the interest and enthusiasm that people from minority backgrounds are taking in the industry, the fact that they would even consider it now, whereas before they might just think, oh, that's clearly not for me. They said, actually, that might be for me, but let me try and address some of my concerns. So we've kind of gone one step forward. Um, and I think in time, obviously, the more women and people from minority backgrounds we get into our profession, the more usual it will become, the more we will get into senior positions. Um, but for that all to happen, I think, you know, from government to industry, the companies that are, you know, building these projects, um, to schools, to universities, the way it's taught, you know, everyone needs to come together to make some change. Well, I also want to talk here about your book, because we are here at the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. You have a book that's been written called Built. In fact, I've, I've heard that this is the two-year anniversary. It is, So yes. congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and it's about the extraordinary secret lives of structures. I'm going to admit, I didn't know structures had secret lives, but I'm very intrigued. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about some of the things that have always intrigued me about buildings and structures and how they work. Um, is it true, I, you think about how, how structures survive different acts of nature, for example. Is it true that at the, tall, uh, at the, at the top of a very tall building, they're swaying? Yes. Quite a bit. Can you yes. explain that to me? <laughs> That's something I've always wondered about. Yeah, so I think it feels really counterintuitive. We think of our structures as being these really solid and strong um, things that are standing out there. But, but yes, in fact, the gravity is always pulling stuff downwards. Wind is pushing it sideways. And in places where there's earthquakes, you get this very irregular, um, quite large force acting on our structures. Um, and you know, just as a tree sways in the wind, tall buildings sway. And that's really normal, and um, it's not scary. <laughs> and what's really critical about the way tall buildings sway is to make sure, even if you can see the movement, that you shouldn't be able to feel it. You should not be able to think, oh, I feel a bit queasy and a bit seasick. So, so we have ways to analyze how much a building is accelerating at the top, and then we know what kind of frequency makes humans feel a bit sick, and we make sure that those two things don't match up. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, how does that work when you think about the construction materials that are being used? Uh, you said there that we think of them being quite rigid, and mm. I mean, I do because I think of steel or metals or yeah. concrete, and you can't think of those moving. So how does that, <laughs> how do you develop a almost flexible building? 
Yes, yeah, so I mean, so the old materials do move. It's just that it takes a huge amount of force, more than you know we could kind of apply with our hands. Um, but but that's I think puts it in context that the forces that gravity applies and the forces that wind and earthquakes apply are absolutely massive. And so we need to make sure that the skeleton we're providing to a building is strong enough to resist those. Um, so yeah, there is a careful balance between making sure that the building is strong enough, that it can take all these really strong loads, but at the same time we want to also minimise the use of our materials because it's less sustainable, you know, we want to kind of um, recy use recycled steel, we want to change the mix of concrete we're using to make sure that we're using, you know, putting less carbon into the atmosphere. So there's a kind of delicate balance between, you know, safety and sustainability that we look at. Okay, one more question for you on how buildings keep standing because earthquakes. This is something yes. you've sort of peppered into the conversation a little bit. I can't comprehend how a structure can stay up <laughs> when the ground underneath it is literally moving. Uh, yeah. What Can you explain to us in layman's terms what the sort of basic structure of making a building earthquake proof is? Right, so in, in really basic terms what needs to happen is you've got this big force kind of shaking your building. And what your building needs to do is to absorb those forces and it needs to flex in a way that it doesn't snap. So if your building has that flexibility we just talked about, it can move around and it won't just kind of snap like that carrot we were talking about before. Um, and then there are different ways that you can do this. That can be inherent in the skeleton of the building itself or it can be using other things like pistons and dampers and lots of water um, in a massive tank at the top of the building that, you know, so as the building sways, this big tank of water kind of sloshes about and absorbs the energy. So it's all about how do you absorb that incredible amount of energy. And when we talk about building high, so of course we have the Burj Khalifa here. I know there are some additional projects in the region that are looking to go even higher. What are the factors that start to limit our ability to go higher and higher? Because I would imagine there's obviously multiple forces at play, but what are the sort of two or three that really stand out that, that are the most difficult to engineer around as mm. we want to go higher? So I'm going to pick two engineering ones. One is the foundations. So what's in the ground? We have to take a huge load coming down from these very, very big structures. So can the ground actually support it? So it's what foundations can you put in? That's one. The other one is about the materials we use. So we've been using steel and concrete for hundreds if not thousands of years. Um, we know what their strength limits are. So what's the next big material? Is it graphene? Is it some you know, derivative of carbon that's going to be able to take you know, that amount of load but at a fraction of the amount of material? And I think the third and final point is you know, what do we actually want to build as humans? Because the taller you go, the longer it takes you to travel up and down the building, the less light you might actually get at the base because the bases need to be big and wide to support the big structure. So it then becomes down to our humanities. Like what is it that actually as human beings we want to occupy? I need to talk about tunnels because when I try <laughs> to think of the things that baffle me the most about what we've been able to engineer as human species, <laughs> I think how is it possible that we have this tube running underwater and the pressure of water doesn't manage to completely mm. crush it? How do tunnels work, <laughs> Roma? <laughs> so tunnels are a really big part of my life because I live in London and we have this huge underground metro system that we lovingly call the tube. Um, and also, there's the Channel Tunnel, which runs you know, from France to Paris, France to Paris, from Paris to London, in fact. Um, and so tunnels are really, really a big part of my existence. And 
Yeah, the shape. It's all down to the shape. So the fact that they are circular means that they can channel forces really beautifully and smoothly around itself. So when you have the pressure um, of water or of earth on a tunnel, you actually, if you think about it, you've got a force acting on all sides of it, like around the whole 360 degrees. So what that means is that you've got quite a fairly uniform pressure acting on this circular shape. And then the job of the circle is basically to kind of resist that, but just to hold its shape. Which is so, because when you think about it, again, as a layperson who doesn't have that experience, you think almost of gravity, that it's pushing mm. down from the top. But when you're underwater, yeah. it's pushing from all sides. All sides, yeah. So the pressure of water is going to vary a little bit from the top to the bottom of the tunnel. But what we do is it's just we, we understand what that difference in pressure is, and we can design for that. But the forces are not actually as big and scary as you might initially think. So I've been telling you about some of the things that fascinate me that I've always wondered how they work. From your point of view, as somebody now who has experience in this field, what, what are the structures that awe you, that you <laughs> sort of just can't believe we've managed to create? So, you know, I think um, the really, really simple ones are the most impressive to me. So if you think about the arch, for example, so the arch, you know, is, is kind of a derivative of what we've just been talking about, the tunnel. The fact that you have a smooth shape and the fact that the way you apply the forces on that shape means that it just beautifully kind of channels the forces around. And we might think of the arch as being a fairly new invention, um, but actually it was the Romans that really pioneered the use of that 2,000 years ago. And some of the biggest, most impressive structures that the Romans created, so if you think about the, the kind of iconic Roman viaduct that's carrying water over this huge valley um, and has these beautiful kind of multi-layered arches underneath it, the principle behind those really impressive structures is actually quite basic. It's the shape of an arch. And, and I think what I then particularly admire about that and, and the Roman engineering aspect of it is that they really understood how the materials that make the arch works. So it's fine to have a great shape, but what are you going to actually make it out of? And for that they used stone and they used brick. And these are both materials that are really strong when you squash them and you compress them. Um, and that's the forces that you feel in an arch. But if you tried to pull apart a brick or stone, then it would crack quite easily. And you yeah. can kind of picture that. Um, so, so they just made sure that those sorts of forces weren't applied in their structures. With all of the inventive things that um, people create today, it, is it, you saying that, listening to you talk about that, it just makes you think so much of what we use in terms of the physics and the knowledge that we have comes from centuries, millennia ago. Mm. I mean, so the fun, fun foundational knowledge that we have and no that we use. No pun intended. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, let's talk about one of the projects that you worked on that was incredibly impressive, the Shard in London. It's an iconic building. I, it has transformed the skyscape yes. of the city yeah. of London. Um, a little bit controversially so. I think mm. some people love it and some people not so much. So tell us a little bit about what it was like to get involved in that project. What were some of the challenges that you faced? Mm. So I think one of the biggest challenges that you face on a building like the Shard, um, particularly when you're building in a city like London, is the sheer amount of other stuff that's around you. So we had a bus station, a train station, tube lines running near the site. We had a hospital across the road. We had some busy roads. Uh, we had um, you know, the foundations of different structures from the 1800s, from the 1920s, the 1960s, all kind of melded together. 
in the middle of what's this very, very busy historical city. And what we wanted to do was to kind of carve a little place out in order to create this really tall structure. Without obviously compromising the foundations absolutely, of anything else. Absolutely. So what was interesting about this particular choice of site in the first place was that it had actually been bombed in the war. So, you know, kind of German planes had dropped bombs onto this area and had actually cleared and therefore destroyed a part of this area in London Bridge. And so in some ways we had this little site that was unique um, to the area and that it was a jagged site. So it was not an octagon, it had lots of different sides to it, but it wasn't regular. And that kind of dictated the shape of the building. I didn't know that. Yeah. Ah. So if you think about the shape of the shard, you've got these big triangular pieces of glass that kind of soar off into the sky. And they seem to be at these random angles to each other to make up its shape. But those angles are dictated by um, what the shape of the site was, which, as I said, was dictated by the fact that the site had been bombed. So there was actually a lot of historical um, background that went into the aesthetic of the building, and then obviously that affected the way we could engineer the building. You know, how do we get these foundations in without causing the hospital across the street and the tunnels behind us um, to experience movement? So that was really, um, I think, the biggest challenge for the project. Wow, that's unbelievable. Mm. I didn't know so much of that background in terms mm. of how the space ended up dictating the way that the structure took shape. And you have been involved in something that, as we mentioned, has really transformed the city of London. But let's you're also involved in a panel tomorrow here at the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature about the future of cities. So I want to talk yeah. about that for a moment. Based on the trends that you're seeing now, tell us, give us a little bit of a projection. What are some of the biggest changes that you think we're going to see in our urban infrastructure and landscapes in the next, let's say, 20, 30, 50 years from mm. now? So in some ways, that's a really difficult question to answer. But So I can give you my perspective. I think we're going to see a lot more off-site manufacture. So this was something that was in fashion in the UK around the 1960s, 1950s. And this, was, this is the principle of taking buildings and building like big parts of it in factories so what that means is there's a lot of quality control you can use different materials that might need a more protected atmosphere you can be really precise in the way you're cutting your bits of wood or the way you're casting your concrete and then you bring them into kind of bite-sized chunks onto your construction site and then you use large cranes to kind of lift it in what that means is that you can build things much much more quickly so Till today, there's been quite um, a specific aesthetic around these kind of modular buildings, as we tend to call them. And you think of them as being very regular, as having a repeated module that you see a lot of. And so um, the buildings look a particular way. But I think what people are really trying very hard to do now is that we're realizing that that's a much more sustainable way to build. Mm -hmm. We can use better materials, less materials. We can build really quickly on site, which means it's much less disruptive. So I think we'll see um, a lot more of those buildings which are basically being built in a factory and then being brought to site to construct them. I'm curious also about 3D construction mm. because I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people are fascinated with those reality TV shows <laughs> of how they build new innovative structures that you see. I forget the name of the one in the UK. It'll, it'll come to me. I'll have to, I'll have to think about it. Uh, is, it the, is it the Gherkin? 
No, there's a show. There's one of these shows where oh, they sorry. talk about how they actually build different, um, you know, new innovative kind of structures and 3D Grand printing. Grand designs. Grand designs. Grand designs. <laughs> yeah. That's the one. That's Thank my favorite. favorite. That's I'm, my I'm favorite. I'm gunning for that job in case anyone's <laughs> listening. <laughs> Do you binge those kind of shows? Because I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've got. We've got. We've got all the seasons too. Yeah. yeah. Well, there. So again, 3D constru 3D construction is something that I've seen come up. Uh, do you see that as playing more of a role in the future? Are there limitations to it that people should be considering? So, so yes, three, um, techniques like 3D printing are going to become much more ubiquitous, I think. I've seen these robotic arms building with brick. I always find that a bit odd that you're using kind of cutting-edge technology from today to use a 10,000-year-old material you know to, to put together so I think it's going to be a really interesting mix of you know really modern techniques of using drones of using robotics but also at the same time using materials you know techniques like the brick which which go back 10,000 years yeah, fascinating stuff this has been such an interesting conversation Roma we've actually run out of time um, but you do have a session coming up today at noon also a panel discussion tomorrow at 4 p.m. to discuss the future of cities as we were just talking about uh, so thank you so much for joining us and best and of luck with those conversations if people can't catch you here where can they catch you online so I am Roma the engineer on um, Instagram and Twitter so you can easily find me there and my website um, and also if you want a little bit of a taster of uh, what I'm talking about then you can download my little mini series I've done a podcast called building stories um, so if you go look up buildingstoriespodcast.com um, you can get a free taster of the wonders of engineering excellent thank you so much Roma thank you it's been great to talk to you there's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.